Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, gods and boils, and welcome to the Screamatorium. Oh, yes, may your night be a scream. It seems I've royally pissed off the gods because it is positively howling down here in Australia. Cats and dogs are literally hitting my tin roof. Before my connections to the World Wide Web is brought to a screeching halt, today's episode are two fairy tales of spooktastic caliber. Your first story is all about a boy whose lack of fear means he's never lacking an opportunity. And your second tale will have you making sure your shadow stays put right where your feet are. Join me for an old-fashioned scream, will you? The story of the youth who went forth to learn what fear was. A certain father had two sons, the elder of whom was smart and sensible and could do everything. But the younger was stupid, and could neither learn nor understand anything. And when people saw him, they said, There's a fellow who will give his father some trouble. When anything had to be done, it was always the elder who was forced to do it. But if his father bade him fetch anything when it was late, or in the night time, and the way led through the churchyard or any other dismal place, he answered, Oh no, father. I'll not go there. It makes me shudder. For he was afraid. Or when stories were told by the fire at night, which made the flesh creep. The listeners sometimes said, Oh, it makes us shudder. The younger sat in a corner and listened with the rest of them, and could not imagine what they could mean. They are always saying, It makes me shudder. It makes me shudder. It does not make me shudder, thought he. That, too, must be an art of which I understood nothing. Now it came to pass that his father said to him one day, Hearken to me, thou fellow, in the corner there. Thou art growing tall and strong, and thou too must learn something by which thou canst earn thy living. Look how thy brother works, but thou dost not even earn thyself. Well, father, he replied, I am quite willing to learn something, indeed. If it could be managed, I should like to learn how to shudder. I don't understand that at all yet. The elder brother smiled when he heard that, and thought to himself, Good God, what a blockhead that brother of mine is. He will never be good for anything as long as he lives. He who wants to be a sickle must bend himself betimes. The father sighed and answered him, oh, Thou shalt soon learn what it is to shudder, but thou wilt not earn thy bread by that. Soon after this, the sexton came to the house on a visit, and the father bewailed his trouble, and told him how his younger son was so backward in every respect that he knew nothing and learnt nothing. Just think, just think, said he. When I asked him how he was going to earn his bread, he actually wanted to learn to shudder. If that be all, replied the sexton, 
he can learn that with me. Send him to me, and I will soon polish him. The father was glad to do it, for he thought, it will train the boy a little. The sexton therefore took him into his house, and he had to ring the bell. After a day or two, the sexton awoke him at midnight and bade him arise and go up into the church tower and ring the bell. Thou shalt soon learn what shuddering is, thought he, and secretly went there before him. And when the boy was at the top of the tower and turned around and was just going to take hold of the bell rope, he saw a white figure standing on the stairs opposite the sounding hole. Who, who is there? cried he. But the figure made no reply, and did not move or stir. Give an answer, cried the boy, or take thyself off, thou hast no business here at night. The sexton, however, remained standing motionless, that the boy might think he was a ghost. The boy cried a second time. What do you want here? Speak if thou art an honest fellow, or I will throw thee down the steps. The sexton thought, he can't intend to be as bad as his words. Uttered no sound and stood as if he were made of stone. Then the boy called to him for the third time, and as that was also to no purpose, he ran against him and pushed the ghost down the stairs, so that it fell down ten steps and remained lying there in a corner. Thereupon he rang the bell, went home, and without saying a word went to bed and fell asleep. The sexton's wife waited a long time for her husband, but he did not come back. At length, she became uneasy and wakened the boy and asked, Dost thou not know where my husband is? He climbed up the tower before thou didst. No, I don't know, replied the boy, but someone was standing by the sounding hole on the other side of the steps, and as he would neither give an answer nor go away, I took him for a scoundrel and threw him downstairs. Just go there and you'll see if it was he. I should be sorry if it were. The woman ran away and found her husband, who was lying, moaning in the corner, and had broken his leg. She carried him down, and then with loud screams, she hastened to the boy's father. Your boy, cried she has been the cause of a great misfortune. He has thrown my husband down the steps and made him break his leg. Take the good-for-nothing fellow away from our house. The father was terrified and ran thither and scolded the boy. What wicked tricks are these? said he. The devil must have put this into thy head. Father, he replied, do listen to me. I am quite innocent. He was standing there by night like one who was intending to do some evil. I did not know who it was, and I entreated him three times, either to speak or to go away. Ah, said the father, I have nothing but unhappiness for you. Go out of my sight, I will see thee no more. Yes, father, right, willingly. Wait only until it is day, and then I will go forth and learn how to shudder, and then I shall at any rate understand one art which will support me. Learn what thou wilt, spake the father. It is all the same to me. Here are fifty thalers for thee. Take these and go into the wide world and tell no one from whence thou comest and who is thy father. For I have reason to be ashamed of thee.
Yes, father. It shall be as you will. If you desire nothing more than that, I can easily keep it in mind. When day dawned, therefore, the boy put his fifty thalers into his pocket, and went forth on the great highway, and continually said to himself, If I could but shudder, if I could but shudder. Then a man approached who heard this conversation, which the youth was holding with himself. And when they had walked a little farther to where they could see the gallows, the man said to him, Look, there is the tree where seven men have married the rope maker's daughter and are now learning how to fly. Sit down below it and wait till night comes and you will soon learn how to shudder. If that is all there is wanted, answered the youth, it is easily done. But if I learn how to shudder as fast as that, thou shalt have my fifty thalers. Just come back to me early in the morning. Then the youth went to the gallows, sat down below it, and waited till evening came. And as he was cold, he lighted himself a fire. But at midnight the wind blew so sharply that in spite of his fire, he could not get warm. And as the wind knocked the hanged men against each other, and they moved backwards and forwards, he thought to himself, Thou shiverest below the fire, but how those up above must freeze and suffer. And as he felt pity for them, he raised the ladder and climbed up, unbound one of them after the other and brought down all seven. Then he stirred the fire, blew it, and sat them all around it to warm themselves. But they sat there and did not stir, and the fire caught their clothes. So he said, Take care, I will hang you up again. The dead man, however, did not hear, but were quite silent, and let their rags go on burning. On this he grew angry and said, If you will not take care, I cannot help you. I will not be burnt with you. And he hung them up again, each in his turn. Then he sat down by his fire and fell asleep. And the next morning the man came to him and wanted to have the fifty thalers and said, Well, dost thou knowst how to shudder? No, answered he. How was I to get to know? Those fellows up there did not open their mouths and were so stupid that they let the few old rags which they had on their bodies get burnt. Then the man saw that he would not get the fifty thalers that day and went away saying, One of this kind has never come my way before. The youth likewise went his way and once more began to mutter to himself, Ah, oh, if I could but shudder, oh, if I could but shudder. A wagoner who was striding behind him heard that and asked, Who are you? I, I don't know, answered the youth. Then the wagoner asked, From, from whence comest thou? I know not. Who is thy father? That I may not tell thee. What is that thou art always muttering between thy teeth? Ah, replied the youth. I do so wish I could shudder, but no one can teach me how to do it. Give up my foolish chatter, said the wagoner. Come, go with me, I will see about a place for thee. The youth went with the wagoner, and in the evening they arrived at an inn where they wished to pass the night. Then at the entrance of the room the youth again said quite loudly, If I could but shudder, if I could but shudder. The host who heard this laughed and said, <laughs> If that is your desire, there ought to be a good opportunity for you here. Ah, oh, be silent, said the hostess. 
So many inquisitive persons have already lost their lives. It would be a pity and a shame if such beautiful eyes as these should never see the daylight again. But the youth said, However difficult it may be, I will learn it, and for this purpose indeed have I journeyed forth. He let the host have no rest, until the latter told him that not far from thence stood a haunted castle where anyone could very easily learn what shuddering was, if he would but watch in it for three nights. The king had promised that he who would venture should have his daughter to wife, and she was the most beautiful maiden the sun shone on. Great treasures likewise lay in the castle, which were guarded by evil spirits, and these treasures would then be free, and would make a poor man rich enough. Already many men had gone into the castle, but as yet none had come out again. Then the youth went next morning to the king and said, If he were allowed, he would watch three nights in the haunted castle. The king looked at him, and as the youth pleased him, he said, Thou mayest ask for three things to take into the castle with thee, but they must be things without life. Then he answered, Then I ask for fire, a turning lathe, and a cutting board with a knife. The king had these things carried into the castle for him during the day. When night was drawing near, the youth went up and made himself a bright fire in one of the rooms, placed the cutting board and knife beside it, and seated himself by the turning lathe. If I could but shudder, said he, but I shall not learn it here either. Towards midnight he was about to poke his fire, and as he was blowing it, something cried suddenly from one corner. Oh, meow. How cold are we? You simpletons, cried he. What are you crying about? If you are cold, come and take a seat by the fire and warm yourselves. And when he had said that, two great black cats came with one tremendous leap and sat down on each side of him, and looked savagely at him with their fiery eyes. After a short time, when they had warmed themselves, they said, Comrade, shall we have a game at cards? Why not? He replied, but just show me your paws. Then they stretched out their claws. Oh, said he. What long nails you have! Wait, I must first cut them for you. Thereupon he seized them by the throat, put them on the cutting board, and screwed their feet fast. I have looked at your fingers, said he, and my fancy for card playing has gone. And he struck them dead, and he threw them out in the water. But when he had made away with these two, and was about to sit down again by his fire, out from every hole and corner came black cats and black dogs with red hot chains, and more and more of them came, until he could no longer stir, and they yelled horribly, and got onto his fire, pulled it to pieces, and tried to put it out. He watched them for a while, quietly, but at last, when they were going too far, he seized his cutting knife and cried, Away with ye, vermin! And began to cut them down. Part of them ran away. The others he killed and threw out into the fish pond. When he came back, he fanned the embers of his fire again and warmed himself. And as he thus sat, his eyes would keep open no longer and felt a desire to sleep. Then he looked around and saw a great bed in the corner. That is the very thing for me, 
said he, and he got into it. When he was just going to shut his eyes, however, the bed began to move on its own accord and went over the whole castle. That's right, said he, but go faster. Then the bed rolled on as if six horses were harnessed to it up and down, over threshold and steps, but suddenly, hop, hop, it turned over upside down, and lay on him like a mountain. But he threw quilts and pillows up in the air, got out and said, Now, anyone who likes may drive, and lay down by his fires, and slept till it was day. In the morning the king came, and when he saw him lying there on the ground, he thought the evil spirit had killed him, and he was dead. Then he said, After all, it is a pity. He is a handsome man. The youth heard it, got up, and said, It has not come to that yet. Then the king was astonished, but very glad, and asked how he had fared. Very well indeed, answered he. One night is past, the two others will get over likewise. Then he went to the innkeeper who opened his eyes very wide and said, I'd never expected to see thee alive again. Hast thou learnt how to shudder yet? No, said he, it is all in vain, if someone would but tell me. The second night he again went up into the old castle, sat down by the fire, and once more began his old song. If I could but shudder. Oh. When midnight came, an uproar and noise of tumbling about was heard. At first it was low, but it grew louder and louder. Then it was quiet for a while, and at length, with a loud scream, half a man came down the chimney and fell before him. Hello, cried he. Another half belongs to this. This is too little. Then the uproar began again. There was a roaring and howling, and the other half fell down likewise. Wait, said he, I will just blow up the fire a little for thee. When he had done that and looked around again, the two pieces were joined together, and a frightful man was sitting in his place. That is no part of our bargain, said the youth. The bench is mine. The man wanted to push him away. The youth, however, would not allow that, but thrust him off with all his strength and seated himself again in his own place. Then, still, more men fell down, one after the other. They brought nine dead men's legs and two skulls and set them up and played at nine pins with them. The youth also wanted to play and said, Hark you, can I join you? Yes, if thou hast any money. Money enough, replied he. But your balls are not quite round. Then he took the skulls and put them in the lathe and turned them till they were round. There, now they will roll better, said he. Hurrah, now it goes merrily. He played with them and lost some of his money, but when it struck twelve, everything vanished from his sight. He lay down and quietly fell asleep. Next morning, the king came to inquire after him. How has it fared with you this time? Asked he. I have been playing at nine pins. He answered, and have lost a couple of farthings. Hast thou not shuddered then? Eh, what? said he. I have made merry, if I did but know what is to shudder. The third night he sat down again on his bench and said quite sadly, If I could but shudder. When it grew late, six tall men, 
came in and brought a coffin. Then said he, <laughs> That is certainly my little cousin who died only a few days ago. And he beckoned with his finger and cried, Come, little cousin, come. They placed the coffin on the ground, but he went to it and took the lid off, and a dead man lay therein. He felt his face, but it was cold as ice. Stop, said he. I will warm thee a little. And went to the fire and warmed his hand and laid it on the dead man's face, but he remained calm. Then he took him out and sat down by the fire and laid him on his breast and rubbed his arms that the blood might circulate again. As this also did no good, he thought to himself, when two people lie in bed together, they warm each other, and carried him to the bed, covered him over and lay down by him. After a short time, the dead man became warm too, and began to move. Then said the youth, See, little cousin, have I not warmed thee? The dead man, however, got up and cried, Now will I strangle thee. What? said he. Is that the way thou thankst me? shall at once go into thy coffin again. And he took him up, threw him into it, and shut the lid. Then came the six men and carried him away again. I cannot manage to shudder, said he. I shall never learn it here, as long as I live. Then a man entered who was taller than all others, and looked terrible. He was old, however, and had a long white beard. Thou wretch! cried he, Thou shalt soon learn what it is to shudder, for thou shalt die. Not so fast, replied the youth. If I am to die, I shall have to have a say in it. I will soon seize thee, said the fiend. Softly, softly, do not talk so big. I am as strong as thou art, and perhaps even stronger. We shall see, said the old man. If thou art stronger, I will let thee go. Come, we will try. Then he led him back by dark passages to a smith's forge, took an axe, and with one blow struck an anvil into the ground. I can do better than that, said the youth, and went to the other anvil. The old man placed himself near and wanted to look on, and his white beard hung down. Then the youth seized the axe, split the anvil with one blow, and struck the old man's beard with it. Now I have thee, said the youth. Now it is thou who will have to die. Then he seized an iron bar and beat the old man till he moaned and entreated him to stop, and he would give him great riches. The youth drew out the axe and let him go. The old man led him back into the castle and in a cellar showed him three chests full of gold. Of these, said he, one part is for the poor, the other for the king, the third is thine. In the meantime it struck twelve, and the spirit disappeared. The youth therefore was left in darkness. Oh, I shall still be able to find my way out, said he, and felt about, found the way into the room, and slept there by his fire. Next morning the king came and said, now thou'st must have learnt what shuddering is. No, he answered. What can it be? My dead cousin was here, and a bearded man 
came and showed me a great deal of money down below, but no one told me what it was to shudder. Then, said the king, thou hast delivered the castle, and shalt marry my daughter. That is all very well, said he, but still, I do not know what it is to shudder. Then the gold was brought up and the wedding celebrated, but howsoever much the young king loved his wife, and however happy he was, he still said always, If I could but shudder, if I could but shudder. And at last, she was angry at this. Her waiting maid said, I will find a cure for him. He shall soon learn what it is to shudder. She went out to the stream, which flowed through the garden, and had a whole bucket full of gudgeons brought to her. At night, when the young king was sleeping, his wife was to draw the clothes off him and empty the bucket full of cold water with the gudgeons in it over him, so that the little fishes would sprawl about him. When this was done, he woke up and cried, Oh, what makes me shudder so? What makes me shudder so, dear wife? Ah, now I know what it is to shudder. And this concludes the story of the youth who went forth to learn what fear was. The Shadow It is in the hot countries that the sun burns down in earnest, turning the people there a deep mahogany brown. In the hottest countries of all, they are seared into darkness. But it was not quite that hot in this country, to which a man of learning had come for the colder north. He expected to go about there just as he had at home, but he soon discovered that this was a mistake. He and other sensible souls had to stay inside. The shutters were drawn and the doors were closed all day long. It looked just as if everyone were asleep or away from home. The narrow street of high houses where he lived were so situated that from morning till night the sun beat down on it, unbearably so. To this young and clever scholar from the colder north, it felt as if he were sitting in a blazing hot oven. It exhausted him so that he became very thin, and even his shadow shrank much smaller than it had been at home. Only in the evenings after sundown did the man and his shadow began to recover. This was really a joy to see, though. As soon as a candle was brought into the room, the shadow had to stretch itself to get its strength back. It stretched up to the wall, yes, even along the ceiling, so tall did it grow. To stretch himself, the scholar went out on the balcony, and as soon as the stars came out in the beautifully clear sky, he felt as if he had come back to life. In warm countries, each window has a balcony, and in all the balconies up and down the street, people came out to breathe the fresh air that one needs, even if one is already a fine mahogany brown. Both up above and down below, things became lively. Tailors, shoemakers, everybody moved out into the streets. Chairs and tables were brought out and candles were lighted, yes, candles, by the thousands. One man talked, another sang, people strolled about, Carriages drove by and donkeys trotted along, tingling, for their harnesses had bells on it. There were church bells ringing, hymns singing, and funeral processions. There were boys in the street firing off Roman candles, oh yes, it was lively as lively can be down in that street. 
Only one house was quiet, the one directly across from where the scholarly stranger lived. Yet someone lived there, for flowers on the balcony grew and thrived under that hot sun, which they could not have done unless they were watered. So someone must be watering them, and there must be people in the house. Along in the evening, as a matter of fact, a door across the street was opened, but it was dark inside, at least in the front room. From somewhere in the house farther back came the sound of music. The scholarly stranger thought the music was marvellous, but it is quite possible that he only imagined this, for out there in the warm countries he thought everything was marvellous except the sun. The stranger's landlord said that he didn't know who had rented the house across the street. No one was ever to be seen over there. And as for the music, he found it extremely tiresome. He said, It's just as if somebody sits there practicing a piece that's beyond him. Always the self-same piece. I'll play it right yet, he probably says, but he doesn't, no matter how long he tries. One night the stranger woke up. He slept with the windows to his balcony open, and as the breeze blew his curtain aside, he fancied that a marvellous radiance came from the balcony across the street. The colours of all the flowers were as brilliant as flames. In their midst stood a maiden, slender and lovely. It seemed as if a radiance came from her too. It actually hurt his eyes, but that was because he had opened them too wide in his sudden awakening. One leap, and he was out of bed. Without a sound, he looked out through his curtains, but the maiden was gone. The flowers were no longer radiant, though they bloomed as fresh and fair as usual. The door was ajar, and through it came music so lovely and soft that one could really feel very romantic about it. It was like magic. But who lived there? What entrance did they use? Facing the street, the lower floor of the house was a row of shops, and people couldn't run through them all the time. On another evening, the stranger sat out on his balcony. The candle burned in the room behind him, so naturally, his shadow was cast on the wall across the street. Yes, there it sat, among the flowers, and when the stranger moved, it moved with him. I believe my shadow is the only living thing to be seen over there. The scholar thought to himself, See how he makes himself at home among the flowers. The door stands ajar, and if my shadow were clever, he'd step in, have a look around, and come back to tell me what he has seen. Yes, he said as a joke, You ought to make yourself useful. Kindly step inside. Well, aren't you going? He nodded to the shadow and the shadow nodded back. Run along now, but be sure to come back. The stranger rose, and his shadow across the street rose with him. The stranger turned around, and his shadow turned too. If anyone had been watching closely, he would have seen the shadow enter the half-open balcony door in the house across the way. At the same instant, the stranger returned to his room, and the curtain fell behind him. Next morning, when the scholar went out to take his coffee and read the newspapers, he said, What's this? As he came out into the sunshine, I haven't any shadow, so it really did go away last night, and it stayed away. Isn't that annoying? What annoyed him most was not so much the loss of his shadow, 
but the knowledge that there was already a story about a man without the shadow. All the people at home knew that story. If he went back and told him his story, they would say he was just imitating the old one. He did not care to be called unoriginal, so he decided to say nothing about it, which was the most sensible thing to do. That evening, he again went out onto the balcony. He had placed the candle directly behind him because he knew that a shadow always likes to use its master as a screen. But he could not coax it forth. He made himself short and made himself tall, but there was no shadow. It didn't come forth. He hemmed and he hoard, but it was no use. This was very vexing. But in the hot countries everything grows most rapidly, and in a week or so he noticed with great satisfaction that when he went out into the sunshine a new shadow was growing at his feet. The root must have been left with him. In three weeks' time, he had a very presentable shadow, and as he started north again it grew longer and longer until it got so long and large that half of it would have been quite sufficient. The learned man went home and wrote books about those things in the world that are true, that are good and that are beautiful. The days went by and the years went past, many, many years in fact. Then one evening, when he was sitting in his room, he heard a soft tapping at his door. Come in, said he, but no one came in. He opened the door and was confronted by a man so extremely thin that it gave him a strange feeling. However, the man was faultlessly dressed and looked like a person of distinction. With whom do I have the honor of speaking? The scholar asked. Ah, said the distinguished visitor. I thought you wouldn't recognize me, now that I've put real flesh on my body and wear clothes. I don't suppose you ever expected to see me in such fine condition. Don't you know your old shadow? You must have thought I'd never come back. Things have gone remarkably well with me since I was last with you. I've thrived in every way, and if I have to buy my freedom, I can. He rattled a bunch of valuable charms that hung from his watch and fingered the massive gold chain he wore around his neck. Oh, how his fingers flashed with diamond rings, and all this jewelry was real. No, I can't. I can't get over it, said the scholar. What does it all mean? Nothing ordinary, you may be sure, said the shadow. But you are no ordinary person, and I, as you know, have followed in your footsteps from childhood. As soon as you thought me sufficiently experienced to strike out in the world for myself, I went my way. I have been immeasurably successful, but I felt a sort of longing to see you again before you die, as I suppose you must, and I wanted to see this country again. You know how one loves his native land. I know that you have gotten hold of another shadow. Do I owe anything to either of you? Be kind enough to let me know. Well, is it really you? said the scholar. Why, this is most extraordinary. I would never have imagined that one's own shadow could come back in human form. Just tell me what I owe, said the shadow, because I don't like to be in debt to anyone. 
How can you talk that way? What debt could there be? Feel perfectly free. I am tremendously pleased to hear of your good luck. Sit down, my old friend, and tell me a bit about how it all happened and, and about what you saw in that house across the street from us in the warm country. Yes, I'll tell you all about it, the shadow said as he sat down. But you must promise that if you meet me anywhere, you won't tell a soul in town about my having been your shadow. I intend to become engaged, for I can easily support the family. Don't you worry, said the scholar. I won't tell anyone who you really are. I give you my hand on it. I promise. And a man is as good as his word. And a word is as good as its... Shadow, the shadow said, for he couldn't put it any other way. It was really remarkable how much of a man he'd become, dressed all in black with the finest cloth, patent leather shoes, and an opera hat that could be pressed perfectly flat till it was only brim and top, not to mention those things were already known about, those seals, that gold chain, and the diamond ring. The shadow was well-dressed indeed, and it was just this that made him appear human. Now I'll tell you, said the shadow, grinding his patent leather shoes on the arm of the scholar's new shadow, which lay at his feet like a poodle dog. This was arrogance, perhaps, or possibly. He was trying to make the new shadow stick to his own feet. The shadow on the floor lay quiet and still and listened its best so that it might learn how to get free and work its way up to be its own master. Do you know who lived in the house across the street from us? The old shadow asked. She was the most lovely of all creatures. She was poetry herself. I lived there for three weeks, and it was as if I had lived there three thousand years, reading all that has ever been written. That's what I said, and it's the truth. I have seen it all, and I know everything. Poetry! The scholar cried. Yes, to be sure, she often lives as a hermit in the large cities. Poetry! Yes, I saw her myself for one brief moment, but my eyes were heavy with sleep. She stood on the balcony, as radiant as the northern lights. Tell me, tell me! You were on the balcony, you went through the door, and then... Then I was in the anteroom, said the shadow. It was the room you were always staring at from across the way. There were no candles there, and the room was in twilight. But the door upon door stood upon in a whole series of brilliantly lit halls and reception rooms. That blaze of lights would have struck me dead had I gone as far as the room where the maiden was. But I was careful. I took my time as one should. And then what did you see, my old friend? The scholar asked. I saw everything, and I shall tell everything to you, but it's not that I'm proud, but as I am a free man and well-educated, not to mention my high standing and my considerable fortune, I do wish you wouldn't call me your old friend. I beg your pardon said the scholar. It's an old habit and hard to change. You are perfectly right, my dear sir. 
and I'll remember it. But now, my dear sir, tell me of all that you saw. All, said the shadow, for I saw it all, and I know everything. How did the innermost rooms look? The scholar asked. Was it like a green forest? Was it like a holy temple? Were the rooms like the starry skies, seen from some high mountain? Everything was there, said the shadow. I didn't quite go inside. I stayed in the dark anteroom, but my place there was perfect. I saw everything and I know everything. I've been in the antechamber at the court of poetry. But what did you see? Did the guards of old march through the halls? Did the old heroes fight there? Did fair children play there and tell their dreams? I was there, I tell you, so you must understand that I saw all that there was to be seen. Had you come over, it would not have made a man of you, as it did of me. Also, I learned to understand my inner self, what is born in me, and the relationship between me and poetry. Yes, when I was with you, I did not think of such things. But you must remember how wonderfully I was always expanding at sunrise and at sunset, and in the moonlight I almost seemed more real than you. Then I did not understand myself, but in that anteroom I came to know my true nature. I was a man. I came out completely changed. But you were no longer in the warm country, being a man. I was ashamed to be seen as I was. I lacked shoes, cloths, clothes, and all the surface veneer which makes a man. I went into hiding. This is confidential, and you must not write it in any of your books. I went into hiding under the skirts of the cake woman. Little she knew what she concealed. Not until evening did I venture out. I ran through the streets in the moonlight and stretched myself tall against the walls. It's such a pleasant way of scratching one's back. Up I ran and down I ran, peeping into the highest windows, into drawing rooms, and into garrets. I peered in where no one else could peer. I saw what no one else could see, or should see. Taken all in all, it's a wicked world. I would not care to be a man if it were not considered the fashionable thing to be. I saw the most incredible behavior among men and women, fathers and mothers, and among those perfectly darling children. I saw what nobody knows, but everybody would like to know, and that it was what wickedness goes on next door. If I had written it in a newspaper, oh, how widely it would have been read. But instead, I wrote to the people directly concerned, and there was the most terrible consternation in every town to which I came. They were so afraid of me, and yet so remarkably fond of me. The professors appointed me a professor, and the tailor made me new clothes. My wardrobe is most complete. The master of the mint coined new money for me. The women called me such a handsome man, and so I became the man I am. Now, I must bid you goodbye. Here's my car. I live on the sunny side of the street, and I am always at home on rainy days. And on this, the shadow took his leave. How extraordinary, 
said the scholar. The days passed, the years went by, and the shadow called again. How goes it? he asked. Alack, said the scholar. I still write about the true, the good, and the beautiful, but nobody cares to read about such things. I feel quite despondent, for I take it deeply to heart. I don't, said the shadow. I am getting fat, as one should. You don't know the ways of the world, and that's why your health suffers. You ought to travel. I'm taking a trip this summer. Will you come with me? I'd like to have a traveling companion. Will you come along as my shadow? It would be a great pleasure to have you along, and I'll pay all the expenses. No, that's a bit too much, said the scholar. It depends on how you look at it, said the shadow. It will do you a lot of good to travel. Will you be my shadow? The trip won't cost you a thing. This has gone much too far, said the scholar. Well, that's the way the world goes, the shadow told him, and that's the way it will keep on going. And away he went. The learned man was not at all well. Sorrow and trouble pursued him, and what he had to say about the good, the true, and the beautiful appeared to most people about as much as roses appeal to a cow. Finally, he grew quite ill. You really look like a shadow. People told him, and he trembled at the thought. You must visit a watering place, said the shadow, who came to see him again. There's no question about it. I'll take you with me, for old friendship's sake. I'll pay for the trip, and you can write about it, as well as doing your best to amuse me along the way. I need to go to a watering place too. My beard isn't growing as it should. That's a sort of disease too. And one can't get along without a beard. Now do be reasonable and accept my proposal. We shall travel just like friends. So off they started. The shadow was master now, and the master was the shadow. They drove together, rode together, and walked together, side by side, before or behind each other, according to the way the sun fell. The shadow was careful to take place of the master, and the scholar didn't much care, for he had an innocent heart. Besides being most affable and friendly, one day he said to the shadow, "As we are now fellow travelers, and have grown up together, shall we not call each other by our first names, the way good companions should? It is much more intimate." That is a splendid idea," said the shadow, who is now the real master. "What you say is most open-hearted and friendly." I shall be just as friendly and as open-hearted with you, as a scholar. You are perfectly well aware how strange is is man's nature. Some men cannot bear the touch of grey paper; it sickens them. Others quail if they hear a nail scratched across a pane of glass. For my part, I am affected in just the way when I hear you call me by my first name. I feel myself ground down to the earth. As I was in my first position with you, you understand. It's a matter of sensitivity, not pride. I cannot let you call me by my first name, but I shall be glad to call you by yours as a compromise. So thereafter, the shadow called his one-time master by his first name. 
It has gone too far, the scholar thought, when I must call him by his last name while he calls me by my first. But he had to put up with it. At last they came to the watering place. Among the many people was a lovely princess. Her melody was that she saw things too clearly, which can be most upsetting. For instance, she immediately saw that the newcomer was a very different sort of person from all the others. He has come here to make his beard grow, they say. But I see the real reason. He can't cast a shadow. Her curiosity was aroused, and on the promenade she addressed this stranger directly. Being a king's daughter, she did not have to stand up ceremony. So she said to him straight, Your trouble is that you can't cast a shadow. Your royal highness must have improved considerably. The shadow replied, I know your malady is that you see too clearly, but you are improving as it happens. I do have a most unusual shadow. Don't you see that figure who always accompanies me? Other people have a common shadow, but I do not care for what is common to all. Just as we often allow our servants better fabrics for their liveries, then we wear ourselves, so I have had my shadow decked out as a man. Why, you see, I have even outfitted him with a shadow of his own. It is expensive, I grant you, but I like to have something uncommon. My. The princess thought, Can I really be cured? This is the foremost watering place in the world, and in these days water has come to have wonderful medicinal powers. But I shan't leave just as the place is becoming amusing. I have taken a liking to this stranger. I only hope his beard won't grow, for then he would leave us. That evening, the princess and the shadow danced together in the great ballroom. She was light, but he was lighter still. Never had she danced with such a partner. She told him what country she came from, and he knew it all well. He had been there, but it was during her absence. He had looked through every window, high or low. He had seen this, and he had seen that. So he could answer the princess and suggest things that astound her. She was convinced that he must be the wisest man in all the world. His knowledge impressed her so deeply that while they were dancing she fell in love with him. The shadow could tell, for her eyes transfixed him through and through. They danced again, and she came very nearly telling him she loved him, but it wouldn't do to be so rash. She had to think of her country and the many people over whom she would reign. He is a clever man, she said to herself, and that is a good thing. He dances charmingly, and that is good too, but is his knowledge more than superficial? That's just as important, so I must examine him. Tactfully, she began asking him the most difficult questions, which she herself could not have answered. The shadow made a wry face. You can't answer me, said the princess. I knew all that in my childhood, said the shadow. Why, I believe that my shadow over there, by the door, can answer you. Your shadow, said the princess, that would be remarkable indeed. I can't say for certain, said the shadow, but I am inclined to think so, because he has followed me about and listened to me for so many years. Yes, I am inclined to believe so. But your royal highness must permit me to tell you 
that he is quite proud of being able to pass for a man. So if he is to be in the right frame of mind to answer your question, he must be treated just as if he were human. I like that, said the princess. So she went to the scholar in the doorway and spoke with him about the sun and the moon and about people, what they are inside and what they seem to be on the surface. He answered her wisely as well. What a man that must be to have such a wise shadow, she thought. It will be a godsend to my people and to my country if I choose him for my consort. That's just what I'll do. The princess and the shadow came to an understanding, but no one was to know about it until she returned to her kingdom. No one, not even my shadow, said the shadow, and he had his own private reason for this. Finally, they came to the country that the princess ruled when she was at home. Listen, my good friend, the shadow said to the scholar. I am now as happy and as strong as anyone can be, so I'll do something very special for you. You shall live with me in my palace, drive with me in my royal carriage, and have a hundred thousand dollars a year. However, you must let yourself be called a shadow by everybody. You must not ever say that you have been a man, and once a year while I sit on the balcony in the sunshine, you must lie at my feet as shadows do. For I tell you, I am going to marry the princess, and the wedding is to take place this very evening. No, that's going too far, said the scholar. I will not. I won't do it. That would be betraying the whole country, and the princess too. I'll tell them everything, that I am the man, and you are the shadow, merely dressed as a man. No one would believe it said the shadow, be reasonable, or I'll call the sentry. I'll go straight to the princess, said the scholar. But I will go first, said the shadow, and you shall go to prison. And to prison he went, for the sentries obeyed the one who they knew was to marry the princess. Why, you're trembling, the princess said, as the shadow entered the room. What has happened? You mustn't fall ill this evening, just as we're about to be married. I have been through the most dreadful experience that could happen to anyone, said the shadow. Just imagine. Of course, a poor shadow's head can't stand very much, but imagine my shadow has gone mad. He takes himself for a man, and imagine it, he takes me for his shadow. How terrible, said the princess, He's, he's locked up, I hope. Oh, of course. I'm afraid you will never recover. Poor Shadow, said the princess. He is very unhappy. It would really be a charitable act to relieve him of the little bit of life he has left. And after thinking it over carefully, my opinion is that it will be necessary to put him out of the way. That's certainly hard, for he was a faithful servant, said the Shadow. He managed to sigh. You have a noble soul, the princess told him. The whole city was brilliantly lit that evening. The cannons boomed and the soldiers presented arms. That was the sort of wedding it was. The princess and the shadow stepped out on the balcony to show themselves and be cheered, again and again. 
The scholar heard nothing of all this, for they had already done away with him. And so ends the shadow. Well, my gore-guzzling gorgons, my meat-munching monsters, and flesh-hungry hounds, I hope you enjoyed today's episode because it was a big one. And mates, thank you for listening, you little lovelies. Next Monday will be the 31st of October, the last day of October, mates, and I can't wait to join you for some spooky stories then. Listeners, I'm going to cut my outro short because of the weather being crazy, as every second I go over, the more there is a chance for me to disconnect and be unable to upload. Yep, it's just the way it is where I live. But a huge thank you to Matostar, the legendary O-Nighty Titan supporter, the honorary Majestic Maya, the amazing and fantastic Lezuka Bowzuka, and my old grain forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, Solstra, and Paige Kramer. Have a spooktageous week, and I can't wait to catch you kitties next Monday. Doodaloo! <laughs> Have a good one, mates.